here's the one thing that you have to understand about Washington, D.C. If you want to get something done, you have to understand the people who are controlling the levers of power, right? Not just on Capitol Hill, but outside of Capitol Hill as well. You have to navigate them and figure out what is important to them, what is not important to them, and that's how you get it done. any given day in Washington, D.C., policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of policy advocates working behind the scenes. Each week, one of these advocates and I will visit one of D.C.'s many watering holes and distill the art of advocacy. We'll pull back the curtain a bit and take a look at how they play their part in this sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us for the next 20 minutes or so. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Well, welcome to 80 Proof Politics. I'm your host, Bill Shute. We're broadcasting today from one of the top 100 steakhouses, Del Frisco's Double Eagle Steakhouse. And in a town that's full of steakhouses and loves their steaks, typically dry-aged, Del Frisco's is setting themselves apart. They have been in the new city center here in D.C. for some time, and they've got great floor-to-ceiling windows with beautiful views of all this wonderful revitalized downtown D.C. They have a number of promos going on this summer. I would definitely want to recommend the Prime Pair, where you can get a two-course meal that is very reasonable and a wonderful wine cellar. I mean, my gosh, they've got over 1,200 wines. So if you like wine, this is a great place to come wine and a little red meat. They've also got a number of private rooms that you can rent out for events. My favorite is the wine cellar. I mean, the boardroom is classy, holds about 20 to 30, but the wine cellar, you can put a bigger group in, and it gives you a little bit of that wine cellar atmosphere on top of that, too. Well, my guest today is Nadim Elshami, a longtime veteran of Capitol Hill politics, I've been in D.C. for many, many years, 25 plus years on the Hill. That's right. right. That's right. Well, when, Dean, with that, cheers and thanks for coming. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Cheers. So you have recently, within the past year or so, joined one of the stalwarts of lobbying organizations in this town, Brownstein, Height, Farber, and Shrek. Now, I noticed in your profile that you're listed as an expert in policy, politics, communications, and navigating D.C. I love that phrase, navigating D.C. Well, explain that to me. What's your definition of helping people navigate? Oh, just a communications, uh, you know, phrase, to be honest with you, because, you know, here's the one thing that you have to understand about Washington, D.C. If you want to get something done, you have to understand the people who are controlling the levers of power, right? right. Not just on Capitol Hill, but outside of Capitol Hill as well. You have to navigate them and figure out what is important to them, what is not important to them, and that's how you get it done. Yep. But, and, and that's that's what a career uh, in politics does. You know, you just kind of wake up in the morning and say, here's the problem. These are the people I need to talk to. This is the people I need to see. Let's go yep. fix it. I'm sure when you came to town, 
you never thought you'd be doing this. And we'll get into your background a bit. Yeah. But most people don't appreciate how you come to town for some interest, a passion, looking for a job. Before you know it, you've got a career. Yeah, that's right. It's like I tell all the students in my classes, if you have no designs on staying in Washington or making a career of this town, just drink bottled water. There's something at Potomac that gets in your blood. Absolutely. Okay. Ab absolutely. There's no question about that. I always wanted to be that staffer who sits behind the member and the senator on C-SPAN, you know, back in the day when I was in the fraternity house, I was, like, instead of watching sports, I was watching C-SPAN. Oh, you are a true wonk. Yeah, I, I was the nerd back then. <laughs> hey, nerd before it was cool. It came true. That is great. So tell me a bit about Brownstein. Now, they've got a great reputation in town, and I know that you have a number of colleagues over there, but what's the general model of business at Brownstein? You know, fixing problems, that's what it comes down to. And the, the model that they have, that we have at Brownstein, is pretty simple. We're bipartisan, bicameral, right? Yeah. Because in this town, you can't get anything done unless you have Democrats, Republicans, you understand what the administration is going to do, and you tackle a problem as if you are the leaders of the two parties sitting down together trying to figure out what is the best solution for this? You may not get everything you want, right. but at the end of the day, you're going to get something that's a lot better than the current situation. That's that's our model, you know, cooperative, and that's and we deal with everything from healthcare to energy to technology, uh, to fintech, to cannabis. You know, there's a lot of top issues. There's also a lot of smaller issues that go, you know, under the radar that we fix. You know, it's great to hear you talk about that in terms of the leaders of both parties getting together and working things out, because that does still happen. People don't see it. The news cycle, the 24-7 media cycle, wants to promote this continuing polarization of politics across the country, but they do work together when they need to, right? Yeah, and they still do it till this day, believe it or not. But, you know, the cameras are not around to see it. Right. And uh, the people are not around to complain about one side or the other meeting with the quote-unquote enemy. You know, as of now, there's a lot of issues that they have to tackle in the next few months. And quietly, their staffs are meeting together to try to figure out how to get this mess handled and under control. Yeah. Let me ask you a little bit more about Brownstein, if you would. So they're a, a well-established law firm, been around about 50 years, Denver-based, right? That's right. That's right. That's okay. right. New to town in the sense of some of the old dogs, but they've been here since 98. That's right. Okay. That's right. And did they set up the D.C. office with a government relations practice in mind, or is this more legal and then this just happened organically? No, it's absolutely was set up as a government relations office, and now we have grown quite a bit. It started off with uh, Norm Brownstein and a couple of other uh, folks, and now it's uh, one, of the, one of the biggest in town, and uh, you know, we're the second largest uh, uh, federal lobbying firm in the country. Well, how many people do you have doing government relations? Well, I think a total maybe of 70 total here. That's fantastic. Okay, so like I said, you've just been there a year or so, and I know you had done some uh, public affairs work before this, right yeah. after you left the Hill, but what was it about Brownstein that was appealing to you for a career move? You know, just the atmosphere. I like the people. I've been lobbied by Brownstein when I was on the Hill, so I know how hard they work, I know how tenacious they are, yeah. and I appreciated that. I appreciated the work ethic, but also the partnership that is uh, part of it. Look. You, you're working together as a team, and, and, uh, and, and, and you don't see that a lot um, where we're in the private sector. And, and look, they're very smart people. They're people who yeah. are much smarter than, than me, 
Uh, but uh, but when you get that, put that team together, and I like that team atmosphere. I like the people. So it's a team approach. You, you guys may go out and attract new clients on a regular basis. I assume you're servicing some of the legal clients from elsewhere around the firm. That's right. That's yeah. right. That's right. And they probably are looking for this bipartisan, bicameral team approach. How, yeah. On a day-to-day -day basis, how does that work? Well, I think it's, you have, a, you know, you spend a lot of time on your phone. Oh, yeah. In conference calls, you know, yeah. so it's uh, you know, so you get you get to know the voice of of your colleagues pretty well. And, you mean it's you know, not all bourbon at the Del Frisco? Yeah, I wish, <laughs> I wish. Look, and then uh, you're you're in uh, you know you're in cabs or Ubers going back and forth to the hill uh, for meetings. Um, you know, but what's really important though is is when you have an opportunity to sit down with the team and talk about a strategy for a particular client or take stock of what how what we've accomplished over the past few weeks um, and where do we need to go from here I mean like those moments of, of, of just uh, when you kind of put your phones down uh, you sit around and you say okay have we done what we're supposed to do what do we need to change you know and and that's those are those are actually the moments that that you realize that 25 years here in Washington D.C. Um, helped to pay off. You know, I would imagine after 25 years, you're still learning something new on a regular basis. Oh, absolutely. What, what's the latest surprise that you've had to deal with or you didn't anticipate? You know, you know, it, it's on the cannabis issue actually. Okay. You know, and and uh, you know, seeing that some of the the folks on the other side were open to this because they think that it's actually. You know, their states have a right to decide what they want to do, and they're willing to actually take some steps to help move this process forward. You know, if there's a state that wants to legalize uh, cannabis, that's their right. But if, you know, my state doesn't want to do it, then I'm not going to do it. And I think that's, that's, that, that actually has been surprising to me that, that uh, um, you know, the Republicans have, have started to open up on this issue. Yeah, I've noticed that. I mean, even former Speaker John Boehner is on the board of a cannabis company, right? He's having a great time. <laughs> we'll have to ask him directly about that. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting you would point out the state-by-state -state approach. One of my first guests was Craig Purser, the CEO of the National Beer Wholesalers Association, and he actually talked about this topic, and he was posturing that this state regulatory model that has worked so well for beer and spirits since prohibition could be the model for a cannabis industry yeah look you, you you've, you've got to have a a federal law that says this is what we can and we can't do right you know uh this is a thriving industry with hundreds of thousands of workers and opportunities billions of dollars as well and in some instances, you know, in all instances, actually, they are operating um, uh, illicitly um, under in, in the eyes of the federal government. So you need to have a solution, a, a, a solution that speaks to all, that sets uh, the the uh, you know the floor. This is how we're going to operate. So it brings that industry out into the light. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Very good. So, be it the cannabis client or any of your other. Clients, let me harken back to that phrase that I used to describe you from your profile on the website. Yeah. When a client like that comes to you, they probably have government relations, classic lobbying in mind. They have a need. There's an opportunity, perhaps, or an obstacle. Yeah. But 
they're pulling on your communications expertise as well. How do you go about incorporating some sort of communication strategy into that representation? Oh, of course. No, that's a great question. It's about political communications, right? Okay. Lobbying is political communications. Building a coalition is a political communication strategy. Um, you know, having constituents call in and using the right phrases, that's all, politi that's all political communications, is what resonates with that member, for example, that he, he or she is going to say, you know, this makes sense, or, uh-oh, I better take that position instead. You just can't go in there and say, you know, uh, uh, Congresswoman or, or Senator, you should do this because, you know, just trust us. Yeah. You have yeah. to make the case, right? Um, and you have to, you know, and, and, and within, you know, uh, Congress or the Senate, uh, what are the pressure points that you have to build with, uh, you know, members in order to go to the leadership and say, look, this is important to us because of X. You have to have that clear uh, communication strategy in any part of a lobbying campaign or any type of, um, you know, uh, um, outreach campaign. So it sounds like a combination of both offense and defense. You're helping to create a positive communication strategy with the right language, with the right words. That's right. But you're also, you have to know your audience. That's right. right? That's but you're also playing defense in the sense that you're probably providing guidance on where the trap doors are. That's exactly right. Because... Um, you know, for, for every uh, for every side, there's another side here in in uh, in, <laughs> in DC, right? right? You know, for every uh, for every position, there's another position, and there's another interest that's pushing back. Um, so uh, whoever has the, the the better communicating communication strategy usually yeah. succeeds. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. One of my previous guest experts talked about how he's very upfront in pointing out the opposing argument, talking about the other side so that a staff or a member of Congress, perhaps someone in the agency, gets a more complete picture. Yeah. Do you find that essential in what you're doing as well? No, I think, well, uh, you know, I may disagree a little bit with that. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I don't like to point out what the other side is saying because that puts it in the mind. I'm, I'm, okay. you, but you, when you go in and uh, you're with a, um, a client or with one of your colleagues, uh, you've got to be prepared to answer the tough questions. And you've got to be honest, right? And if you don't know the answer, this is my advice, is if you don't know the answer, you just say, you know what? I don't know the answer. I'm going to get back to you. I will find you the answer. Don't make it up on the fly. That oh. is that is the worst thing that you could do um, for your for your clients. Uh, you're wasting the time of, of, of this uh, member or senator or their staffers. You just don't do that. But when you get asked that tough question, well, why should I support this when the other side is saying this? You've got to have a response and you've got to be prepared. You've got to show that you are the expert in explaining your side of, this, of the story. Yeah, that's sure. It does help you make an honest yeah. broker. Makes you an honest broker. That's, that's right. Yeah. That's right. As part of those communication strategies you develop, does social media advocacy advertising ever come into play? 
Well, you know, uh, it, I'm sure it does. This is not something that we do okay. here um, at Brownstein. Now, did you do that in a previous life with the public affairs? Uh, yeah, we, we we certainly did that. Um, and we also did, and I did a, you know, I, I ran the communications office for the leader and, mm -hmm. and you know, and, and, and we began really early on to employ these these practices to use social media more effectively just to communicate direct directly look we were doing it before president trump so you know oh, yeah. I, <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so you you raise this and it's somewhat of a great segue you, while your most recent position on the hill was chief of staff yeah. to then minority leader Pelosi, now yes, Speaker yeah. Pelosi, you have a deep background in communications and press. Yeah. Was this something you came at naturally? Did you study communications in college? Uh, no, as a matter of fact. I studied international business and I had a minor in political science. Okay. And uh, the international business degree was uh, one of those, uh, son, you've got to study international business because nobody really does anything with political science. <laughs> So luckily, uh, <laughs> do you find the poli sci background helped you when you got started, or did you just learn it on the fly, like so many people? Oh no, it it, it absolutely helped me. Ab no no question about it, because you because you had to really read and understand our system, you know. Yeah. And uh, and, I, and I got it from way back when I was in the eighth grade. The first thing that 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 made me really love politics, I was in a I was in a in a class, and and we were talking about the power of the purse. Oh yes. And all of a sudden, he's like, what, what is that, Mrs. Fields? I still remember the name of the teacher. And who's holding the purse? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. She explained it uh, about how, you know, Congress um, controls the purse, controls the money, appropriates the money. And, uh, and that moment, I turned and I became fascinated with Congress. Uh, Ed Mann never really wanted to work in the White House, always wanted to work in Congress. And uh, and I continued on through high school, and I and and you know, got lucky enough to get a minor in college. And and uh, in terms of communications, uh, the the story goes as I wasn't able to uh, pass an LC test, <laughs> legislative correspondence mm -hmm. writing test way back. <laughs> uh, but there was an opening in um, in the press office in Senator Boxer's office, right. and lo and behold, you know, I I instead of going to grad school, I went into the communications office and the rest is history. I loved it. I have said this before on 80 Proof Politics. I do think Capitol Hill is the best grad school in the country. You get paid to Dude, learn anything you want to learn. That's exactly right. And that was and that was the selling point. That was that was that's exactly what they said. They said, "You know what? We'll pay you for the next 2 years to learn a trade." Yeah. And you get paid like a grad student. Yeah, but you know, <laughs> instead of going and, and you know taking loans to go to grad school. Yeah. Very good. So Barbara Boxer was your first job in town. Where'd you go to college? Uh, University of Evansville, Indiana. In Indiana. Yeah. Okay. And how did you stumble on the job with Senator Boxer? Uh, I mean, look, I my my first job was delivering mail in the Senate mailroom. Uh, you know, and uh, I did a lot of internships in the morning, and then finally uh, was able to actually uh, pass the typing test. So I got to job in her uh, mailroom. Yeah. <laughs> I, it, 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 I'm not sure how many of our listeners yeah. can appreciate what a typing test is, but was this a speed and clarity kind of test? Exactly, because she received uh, thousands of letters a week, and they had to be entered into the computer. Back right. in the day, the computer were big terminals with, and they were, you know, type was green, and it was, yeah. 
you know, in, in the dark ages. No graphic interface, trust me. No, no. I got here to town working on the hill right after they had moved off of the old punch card system. Oh, wow. So that is, uh, I can't imagine trying to operate like that these days. No. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So press secretary for Senator Moxer, that had to be a full-time job. I mean, that's not the kind of thing you can leave on a Friday afternoon when you go home. No, and that was, uh, you know, I was at deputy press secretary for, okay. for her and, uh, and, um, and deputy communications director in her campaign. But back then, believe it or not, you could leave because they couldn't really track you down with iPhones uh, and emails. Uh, you did, you know, had a pager. Um, again, I, you may have to explain to <laughs> what, a, what a pager is. Um, but, uh, it was, but it was intense. But you're there for a long time, you know, because yeah. you had to do your work. So you were there for, you know, you didn't leave until 10. And I was very, and she was very, and the time changed, because especially if she went back to California. When she would go back to California, were you still on call, or did the state folks take care of that? Uh, you know, both. Okay. Both. And we had, a, we had a good team. It was a fantastic team. Learned a lot. No, that was absolutely my, the, you know, my beginning of love of communications, uh, political communications. And how long were you there? Uh, I was in that position for four years. Four. That's good. Yeah. You beat the turnover rate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I seemed to stay quite a bit, except, uh, you know, with the speaker and the leader, I was there for ten and a half years. Good for you. So you leave boxers off and you go to the House side. Yes. All right, you yeah. worked for Jan Schakowsky. Jan, yep. I was... Uh, mm -hmm. You know, a deputy chief of staff and, and communications director. And as a freshman member, I was asked, like, why would you want to work for a freshman member of, you know, in the minority? The lower chamber. That's right. That's right. Uh, but that was uh, that experience because uh, Jan was um, willing to take on any press inquiry. She was wanted to go on Fox uh, when Democrats weren't going on Fox. Yeah. Uh, we wanted to make news, and that was very, very um, 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 helpful in developing my, even my professional um, abilities. Um, and um, and and it was it was it was a great run for six years. It was a lot. Six years. That's fantastic. Well, yeah. how how did the role of deputy chief of staff differ from communications director? Well, I think it was kind of a combination, and uh, it was a senior most. Staffer after the chief of staff on you know in the office, I, I was seen as a senior advisor to her. Uh, I did have some um, managerial responsibilities at the time, so um, it was it was it was a good opportunity, and I was more involved in legislation and and, and you know and, and dealing with um, you know issues focusing on on the staff and hiring and so on. So it was, it was I had, to have a lot of responsibility because you'd have to explain what is going on that is complicated, both in, in legislation but also in politics. And now being a deputy chief of staff, you'd have to, to take a look and, 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 and take those into account as you make important decisions. So you, you grab that leadership experience as a deputy chief of staff, and then you decide to go back to the Senate. That's right. You got to work for Dick Durbin. That's right. Who some would describe today as a very high energy That's right. politician. Yeah. What was attractive about jumping back into the Senate and particularly working for him? Yeah, well you, you hit the nail on the head. He's a leadership. But he was also he is also Senator Dick Durbin, you know, so clearly working in the Illinois delegation for you know, for Jan um, everyone knew who Senator Durbin was, and going to work in his leadership office, and, and at the end being a senior communications advisor, where I've helped develop 
um, messaging that he would share with the senators was 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 very attractive. So now you've gone from watching out for your boss's interests into what sounds like a much more strategic role for the larger set of Democratic senators. That has to be a, a mind adjustment. Oh, that's right. It was. It was. But what I really appreciated is that, you know, uh, define your role and uh, this is generally what we want. Go do it. And, um, and I appreciated Senator Durbin for giving me that opportunity because it made you think. It made you a better strategic thinker and, and how to approach this process. And, and um, you know, um, um, you know and, and, and having access to everyone on the outside. Oh, I bet you got pummeled with information. Yeah, constantly from whether it's from pollsters or uh, academics, uh, research papers. Like this is this is what you need to be doing. This mm. is what and and uh, and and it helped you. Uh, but now you have to take all that, condense it, and say what is important for the senator to read. Of course, he's a you know he he reads constantly. Oh, is that right? Many books, yes, <laughs> and many, uh, and uh, no one is uh, is is like him. That's great. So you've developed a new talent yet along the way. Now you're thinking more strategically about communications. You still have that deputy chief of staff experience to pull on. Is that what was appealing to Pelosi's operation? Did, did they come find you? Yeah, it was, uh, it was all luck. I mean, uh, it's, uh, I'd say all politics is luck, it seems like. I was uh, walking outside to go get lunch, ran into someone who uh, currently was in her office, uh, after the election and who was going to be departing and, and they asked me hey you know you'd be perfect for this position in the communication shop because we're expanding and I'm leaving and and you need to talk to so and so and I did and that was a um, um, again if, if I waited five minutes before you know later I would have missed it and just <laughs> <laughs> the value of being there right? exactly yeah. exactly so how many years were you with her Ten and a half. That's phenomenal. That's quite a run. Yeah, absolutely. So you must have seen and been a part of a lot of big policy decisions. I would, I would yeah. imagine you came through Dodd Frank. You probably dealt with the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, ab absolutely. Look, uh, everything from uh, the first stimulus with President Bush mm -hmm. uh, to uh, you know passing a type of energy bill with the with President Bush uh, to uh, TARP to essentially saving the you know the the economy. Um, um, here in the U.S. and maybe the world, uh, and then uh, with President Obama's election, you know, like you said, Dodd Frank, the Affordable Care Act, uh, another you know uh, stimulus uh, package, and and everything else in between, and then the loss, losing the uh, yeah. losing the majority, and and dealing, and then having to navigate at that time and figuring out what is the role of, you know, of a of a of a minority leader in the you know in in that. In that position, um, especially with having a Democratic president, what's he going to do? Right. Are we, we going to get triangulated? And then having President Trump in office—it was—it was really th th those ten and a half years. You've experienced it all. Oh my gosh, yes. And uh, it was fantastic. Looking back upon reflection with your time during the Affordable Care Act debate, what's the most memorable experience that you can share? Um. Well, it was after that. It was after the debate, and it was, um, I, I happened to be uh, in uh, the leader's office at the time after the Supreme Court um, decided that uh, the Affordable Care Act is constitutional. And, uh, you know, the look on, on 
the speaker's face is, is forever ingrained in my in my brain. Um, you can, know, can you describe it? It was. Uh, I told you so because she's been saying all along that it was going to be constitutional. She even gave that's one. I think two, so it was relief uh, for sure. And then three was like that, okay, they're not going to stop. We've got to keep fighting, so now let's go to work. It's a great point because as someone who's followed the Affordable Care Act from President Obama's first announcement of it to conclusion of the, the vote... You knew it wasn't going to be over. You knew that policy was still going to be created. It was yeah. still going to be fought yeah. every step of the way and on many fronts. That's right. Can you translate that experience into your representation of your clients? Is this something that you drive home to them that, you know, you may have a goal in mind, but yeah. it, often the battle extends well beyond it. Oh, it's not over till it's over. It's only a first step. Exactly. You know, just because just because someone wrote a letter in, in support of, of your position doesn't mean that, like, five other people are not going to write a letter in opposition of yeah. your position. Just yeah. because you had a language in a, in a bill that passed a subcommittee doesn't mean it's going to actually be taken out in the full committee, Mark. You know, you just have to keep moving. It's, it's, once, it's not over till it's over. Look, you know, with, with the Affordable Care Act... Um, uh, the battle continues. Still to this day, to it this does. Day. And we, we still deal with it in, in my current position as well. Um, um, but it's not going to be, it's not going to go away um, until there's no more fight. Well, one final question I have for you, Nadim, is, and, and you can answer this to the extent you feel comfortable, but for those who have followed congressional politics of the past decade, there was this unique phenomenon that threw itself into John Boehner's lap called the Freedom Caucus and the insurgence of the Tea Party mentality across the country. Is it fair to say now that Speaker Pelosi has her own set of challenges of a similar vein with the new progressives in the House? It's, it's all, the challenge has always been there. And uh, it's, it's the Democratic Caucus is uh, made of uh, progressives and those who call themselves more progressives, there is the blue dogs, there's the new dems, there are the unaffiliated, there are the chairmen, there are those who say, you know, we've been all or none. Um, the beauty of the caucus is there's not one group that could actually stop anything because some within that group want to get it done, want to get, want to legislate. It's inherent within Democrats, <laughs> and 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 that's and you have to find the magic formula each time. So yeah, yeah. I think it was Tocqueville that talked about America's thousand special interests. Yeah, the overriding <laughs> charm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's I think good. that is so true. What about your career on the Hill? Looking back on it, what can you point to one or two? advocacy campaigns to get some policy created that you think were just spot on, effective, and that's the model? Well, XM. Uh, XM, please. Yeah, that was, that was absolutely the, you know, you had to, uh, I, was, I was on the Hill at the time, and, and Republicans wanted to vote for it. In the past, they had supported it for, for, for many years. Um, but slowly, due to the 
you know, Freedom Party and, and others, they shied away from it and they moved away from it and they couldn't, you know, and, and Speaker Boehner couldn't put it on the floor. So this was the battle over not only reauthorization, but were they going to fill the board? That's right. That's right. But, but this was a campaign by um, outside organizations, outside groups, corporations to say this impacts American jobs. Mm-hmm. And this is important. You have to do what's right. Um, and... Um, it was a constant barrage of meetings and calls. And when Republicans signed on to the discharge petition, which I think you have to, you know, essentially yeah. explain that what a discharge petition is, you have to, in order to get a bill, because Democrats were the minority, and, and the majority doesn't sign discharge petitions. No. What it does is it forces the forces a bill to come to the floor. Well, the majority controls. Literally discharging it from the committee to yeah, jurisdiction. That's right, that's right. So when they finally sign on and it was coordinated we you know democrats all came in that bay and signed and republicans then started speaker banner was aware that this was happening and he allowed them and uh so that that campaign took a while but it was very effective and it got it done they got it done on a bipartisan basis at the end of the day and it showed that you know when when you have a a good political communications message then you will succeed I love that. And my final question for you, my friend, is what have you preferred over the years, House or Senate? I love Congress. <laughs> that's, a very, that's a very political answer. Yeah. <laughs> I tell you, I, lo- I love them both. And I learned from both, right? Yeah. When I was in the House, I was for some reason the Senate expert. When I was in the Senate, it was like I was the House expert, you know? <laughs> You're a cat of a different color. There right? you go. Well, you know, that is, you've raised a great point because I get asked so many times by college graduates or people who are new to town, how do I get started? What should I do to start on my path? What is the best job possible? And my answer is always the one you get because yes, this town thrives on very full resumes. Yes, people sir. want to work with people who have tool sets and skills from different experiences. Yeah. Right. You're the living example of that. Well, thank you. No, I, I, I completely agree. Uh, the most I learned uh, from a, from a, a communication skill was the uh, two years I worked in the Senate mirror room. People from various parts of lives, life, you had to uh, communicate with them every day. And when things were kind of slow, maybe you played cards or you went out to lunch. It was older, younger, minorities. It doesn't matter. But they were just like all there for a reason. Some of them had seen this as a short-term spurt like me. Some of them, this was their job. Um, and, um, and you just never know where it's going to lead you. Right. Well, with that, Nadim, I want to thank you so much. Cheers for joining us on Any Proof Politics. And that's all the time we have for today. But remember, kids, no matter what you think about the current state of politics in Washington these days, whether you think the glass is half full or half empty, there's plenty of room to fill your drink. Cheers. Cheers. Did you know virtually all vessels traveling in the U.S. have to be American-built, owned, and crewed? That's thanks to the Jones Act, which is the bedrock of the American maritime industry. On the American Maritime Podcast, we cover the topics that matter most to the 650,000 men and women of American maritime, while also being accessible for the average listener to learn about this industry. Every episode features a new guest, including congressional leaders, senior military officials, leading policy analysts, and other experts. Come aboard and listen wherever you get your podcasts or watch on the American Maritime Partnerships YouTube channel.